we are coming to the end of John chapter 8, and we're going to be doing that by looking at verses 31 through 59. So this is a big, big chunk. But as we do, um, what I want you to do is I want you to, to follow along with this in light of a pattern that, um, you know, if you, as you've been probably noticing throughout our study of the gospel, um, there is this pattern that is emerging in it. And it goes something like this, that Jesus teaches and he testifies to his identity as God in the flesh, as the Messiah. And the Jewish leaders accuse him of breaking the law and try to rouse people up against him. And, but even as they're doing that, some people believe in him. But every time, without fail, every time, Jesus does this thing where he says, basically, hold up a second. Are you sure about that? He says, I know your hearts. And you don't really know what you're saying. Now, why does he do this? It's exactly, it's exactly that. It's that he does know what is in the hearts of people. And he knows that not all people who profess faith actually possess it in these moments. And this is the pattern that we're going to see once again as, um, in our passage tonight as we uh, explore five key truths in these verses. And those five are, first, that Jesus defines who are his disciples. Second, that Jesus is the source of true freedom. Third, that it's possible to think we're found and still be lost. Fourth, that our actions reveal who we really are. And fifth, that the Father judges us based on how we respond to Jesus. So let's look at that first, that first truth together. Jesus defines who are his disciples. And we see that in verses 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to those Judeans who had believed in him, if you continue to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, let's just remember, let's back up a second here because Jesus is speaking directly to the people who said that they believed in him in verse 30 after jesus had this holy fed upness moment where he answered the jewish leaders and teachers of the laws unbelieving questions about his identity the questions that they that he had been answering again and again and again throughout his ministry that what he had taught from the beginning of his ministry and what we've seen from the beginning of John's gospel, which is this, that Jesus is no mere human teacher. He is no mere prophet. Jesus, the Messiah, is God. He is one with God the Father who does and teaches all that the Father does and teaches. And he is the one that not only teaches truth, but who is truth. So even as these, these Judeans professed faith, Jesus wants them to know what it really means to be one of his disciples, what it means to believe in him. And so that's why he said, if you continue in my, to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, if you're reading from the ESV, um, you're probably going to see this word abide 
in verse 31. And this is a beautiful word. I love that word. Because that single word conveys this idea that the translation that I'm reading uh, uses about four words to talk about. Um, it it's means to continue to follow Jesus' teaching, to obey, to follow, to believe in an active, continuing sense. It has this idea of a confident, spirit-born, spirit-enabled and empowered trust in Jesus and in his teaching. To believe both in his divinity and have a desire to follow his teaching. And so that's how Jesus defines who are his disciples. There are people who, although they do it very imperfectly, because none of us are perfect, there are people who continue on in his teaching, people who are free because they know the truth. They know him. And that's important for us to know right now in this particular moment because of both what we're going to see in, in the rest of this passage, as, we, as we'll see in a minute, but also as we look at our current cultural moment and consider uh, the community or really the communities that we are all called to serve. Because we live in a society that re revolves around this idea of self. We are radically, and I do mean radically, individualistic. And this permeates every aspect of our lives. We seek to determine our own identities on every level. We reject any boundaries that we think steal our joy. We even redefine the very concept of truth itself. And we do it because we want to be free. And I'm using the word we very intentionally here because it's not just non-Christians who do this. It's really easy to point at people out there and say, this is their problem, but it's our problem too. We do it all the time. We are always tempted to redefine God's commands to make them more comfortable for us, to make them less off-putting. And sand off some of the rougher edges of, of what he might tell us to do. And sometimes we do this in the name of reaching people who don't know Jesus. But Jesus' definition of who are his disciples is both an encouragement and a challenge for us. Because if we abide in him, if we abide in his word, if we continue to follow his teachings... We are his disciples, and only then are we truly free. And that's the mindset that we need to have as we engage in our mission of making disciples, of helping non-Christians meet Jesus, but also helping, to, helping our fellow Christians to grow to be more like Jesus. We need to remember that, that, that people are seeking freedom, but unless we're looking at Jesus— we're always going to be looking in the wrong direction because to be self-focused isn't to find freedom. It's to be a slave, which is what we see in the next section of this text as we notice the, the Judeans' reaction. So pick this up in, in verse 33. We are the descendants of Abraham, they replied. 
and have never been anyone's slaves, how can you say you will become free? So when Jesus told them that if they abide in him, if they know that, that they will know the truth and the truth will set them free, they heard him calling them slaves. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to unpack here a little bit because in one sense, they were right, but in a more significant way, they were very, very wrong. So, in that sense that they were right, in that particular time, historically, politically, they technically weren't in bondage to anybody, although certainly Judea could not be called a free self-governing nation. I mean, they were ruled, they were subjects of Rome, which means that while they had a degree of self-governance, that self-governance was very, very limited. And if we back up historically even farther, if we, if we take a grand snapshot of Israel's history, we can see that they most definitely had been in bondage numerous times. Arguably, throughout their history, they were in bondage more often than they were not. Before, think about just before the, the Roman Empire's rise, they had previously been in bondage to Egypt, to the Philistines, to the Syrians, to the Babylonians, to the Medes, and then the Persians after that, and then the Greeks during Alexander the Great's reign, just to name a few. And in between all of those, there were very limited periods of time of self-governance. They were intimately familiar with bondage with slavery from a political standpoint of being in the service of other nations but that's not primary that's not really what jesus had in mind here because and they understood that too because this is that more significant issue is they understood that there was a religious a spiritual component to jesus words and that's what caused them such great offense after all, these were the descendants of Abraham, the friend of God. They were God's chosen people, the ones upon whom he had set his affections, the people that he had called to be a light in the world, to point all the world to the glory of God. How could Jesus call Abraham's descendants slaves? Well, he answered them in verse 34. I tell you the, the solemn truth, or truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the family for, forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be really free. So when Jesus says that everyone who practices sin sin is a slave of sin he's revealing an essential reality about the nature of humanity and that points us back to the very beginning of the bible because if you remember when god created the first humans adam and eve they were created good and not just good god said that they were very good and in those initial days or, or moments or however long it was uh, before they messed up everything. 
They had unhindered access to God. They stood in his presence. They walked with him in the garden. They were free in a way that we can't possibly imagine. Because in their freedom, they could choose to obey God, to honor him, to love him. And they could also choose not to. And that's what they did. Because rather than trusting God, their creator, the one that they walked with so intimately, they rebelled against him. And there's lots of reasons for that, but ultimately it comes down to one thing. They wanted to. They chose to reject God. And their choice doomed all of us because as a result of their sin, no longer could humans be called purely very good by nature. Our nature became twisted and distorted by their sin and Adam's sin specifically. And because of his sin, we were condemned. Humanity fell into this bottomless pit of ever-increasing evil, one that is so extreme that Genesis 8.21 says that the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. That, that pursuing sin, pursuing evil is the default mode of the human heart. And that wasn't just true in Genesis or in the rest of the Old Testament or even up to the New Testament. It's true right now. When human beings are presented with the choice to sin or to not sin, guess what we're always going to choose? We're always going to choose to sin. It's what we are bent toward. It's our natural inclination. We are enslaved to it, as Jesus said in verse 34, and as Romans six seventeen also affirms. Now, here's where things get really, really twisted with this idea of being in bondage to sin or being slaves of sin. Because for human beings, in and of ourselves, we don't sin simply because we don't have a choice. We don't sin because we're being forced to. This is the thing that's really messed up about this bondage that we are all captured in, is that we sin because it's what we want to do. It's what we love the most. And what Jesus was telling the Judeans is, the, is what he's telling us as well. It's that we need to know this because we need to know the source of true freedom. Because by nature, we are all enslaved to sin. We chase after it, thinking that it will offer us freedom but it only leaves us condemned. And when it fails, what do we do? We keep going after it again and again and again and again. But here's the good news. That freedom that we're looking for, the freedom that sin holds out to us and, and gives us this false picture of, freedom actually does exist. But freedom is only found in Jesus. He is the source of true freedom. And when Je we trust Jesus for salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins, we find the freedom we desperately need. The kind of freedom, even that we didn't really know that we needed at all. 
a freedom that's based in a new heart given to us by God, the Holy Spirit, one that is filled with new desires, a freedom that breaks the chains that sin creates around us and allows us to honor and obey Jesus, to do all that he teaches and to trust in him as our only hope. And so as we interact with people who aren't or aren't yet Christians, this is the reality that we need to point them to. We need to help them to see all the ways that they're, try, that, that they're trying to find freedom are only leading them into a deeper sense of darkness and hopelessness. That what they think will liberate them will only further ensnare them. And that, same, and that is the same thing that we need to encourage one another with as well. Because, I mean, I know for a lot of Christians, particularly those who grew up in uh, you know, contexts where there were a whole lot of rules, but not a whole lot of gospel, there's a temptation to kind of whiplash in, in, in their thinking, to go to whatever the opposite extreme of what they grew up with might be. But whatever our background, and whomever we're talking to, we need to compassionately, lovingly keep pointing one another to Jesus and to the truth that we only find freedom in him. We need to remind one another that Jesus is better in every moment, at every day. When things are going well and when everything seems to be in the toilet, we need to know in those moments that Jesus is better. For all of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we came from, apart from Jesus, enslavement to sin is the state of our souls. And if we really want to find the freedom that we seek, we need to turn to him. We need to turn to Jesus to find freedom in obedience to the one who not only, who lived perfectly when we could not, who died on our behalf and who rose again from the grave. But even though Jesus is the source of true freedom, hearts that are enslaved to sin, they can't hear it. And so Jesus' teaching doesn't take root in hearts that love sin, that love darkness instead of light. And this is what we see in verse 37. Jesus says to them, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you want to kill me because my teaching makes no progress among you. I'm telling you the things that I have seen while with the Father. As for you, as for you, you practice the things you've heard, uh, as for you practice the things you have heard from the Father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus replied, if, if you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the deeds of Abraham. But now you are trying to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You people are doing the deeds of your father. So even though Jesus' disciples are people who desire to follow him, to obey his teaching, and to trust and trust in his identity as the Messiah, as God's promised rescuer, his words will always be unpersuasive to those who are apart from him. 
There might be a sort of superficial affirmation, but they ultimately fail to take root. They fall on deaf ears because they fall on dead hearts. What Jesus is saying here is that you can think that you're found the way that, these, that, that, that the Jewish people did and still be lost. The Judeans might have been Abraham's biological descendants, but they weren't his spiritual ones. If they were, Jesus said, they do what Abraham did. They would believe in Jesus. And instead, they wanted to kill him because they didn't trust him and they didn't really care what he had to say. And this is true of all people. Is true for those who grew up in the church as much as it is for those who've never once stepped inside her doors. And we should be, so we need to be careful to not put too much stock in things that Jesus doesn't. Because he's far less concerned about things like lineages and backgrounds and legacies and things like that. Um, Because after all, we can have the most faithful parents in the world. We can have the most faithful grandparents in the world. And we can still want nothing to do with Jesus. We can be faithful children and have parents who want nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus is far more concerned about our hearts and how the state of our hearts is revealed in our lives because genuine faith bears fruit. Which leads us to our next truth that we're going to explore, which is that our actions reveal who we are. Because this reality that we've talked about here, that those who think that they're found can still be lost, it doesn't sit well with the Judeans. They're getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And, and I can kind of understand why. I mean, Jesus is poking some pretty big, pretty big bears here. Um, but instead of actually hearing Jesus' words, They just keep proving what he says is true as they continue to to push back against him. Because they say, in the next verse, they said to Jesus, we were not born as a result of immorality. We have only one father, God himself. And so the Judeans, they doubled down here. They understood that Jesus was telling them that their biological lineage was of no consequence, but they didn't want to hear that. So they said, we're not illegitimate children, which also is kind of a not-so-subtle dig at Jesus himself since, um, you know, that, that whole oddness of how he was born um, with no human father involved, um, that led to a whole bunch of rumors that were, that were being spread um, about who his father might be. <laughs> um, but what they do in doubling down here, not just making a dig at Jesus. They don't simply, they they say, you know, we're not, we're not illegitimate children. In fact, we're not even simply Abraham's children. We are God's children. God is our father. Basically taking the same language that Jesus is using and applying it to themselves with some missing with some missing elements of course but Jesus doesn't let up the heat that he's giving them instead he repeats himself again in verse 42 he says if god were your father you would love me 
For I have come from God and now am here. I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot accept my teaching. So again, Jesus says, if God were your father, you would do what your father desires. You would love me. So in the same way that he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. If you were God's children, you would do what the father wants you to do. And that's to love me, to obey and believe in what I say. And yet that's not the case, is it? And so instead, Jesus points them to the real issue with some fairly provocative language. He says, you people are from your father, the devil. And you want to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not uphold the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he lies, he speaks according to his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I am telling you the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can prove me guilty of any sin? If I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who belongs to God listens and responds to God's words. You don't listen and respond because you don't belong to God. And so Jesus counters their claim that they are not just Abraham's children, not just God's children, but actually God's children. And he says, actually, your father's the devil. He reveals their real spiritual lineage, and he does it by pointing to what they do. And that's this principle that we need to see, that our actions reveal who we are. The actions of the Judeans reveal that the, who their true spiritual father is because they act like him. They lie, they defame, they falsely accuse, they reject, they ignore, they try to kill Jesus because that's what their father does. And it's what he always did because he was a murderer and a liar from the beginning, Jesus said. He's the father of lies. And because of their lineage, because they are the children of their father, they can't and won't see the truth for what it is. They won't accept it because they can't accept it. Their actions reveal who they are just as our actions reveal who we are. And this isn't the only place this principle reveals itself in the Bible, of course. All throughout Scripture, we're told in many different times, in many different ways, that our actions reveal who we are. Often we, we hear it said basically like this, that we will be known by our fruit. And that is a challenge for us. Because we need to consider that. What are we known for? How do we respond to Jesus' commands? Are we inclined to obey or, to, or do we find ourselves looking for ways to reject or to ignore them? How do we respond to well-intended correction as well? 
How, do we see the evidence, in, do we see any evidence in our lives, however imperfectly, that we are slowly becoming more like Jesus? That is, do we see that our character is being shaped in a way that we are, that we are, that we are gradually being known for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the fruit of the Spirit. Are those things in our lives? Now, here's both an encouragement and a, a, a quick hint for us all in, in considering these. Because when we look at these questions by ourselves, it's really difficult to try to answer them honestly. Because none of us are so self-aware that we can do that. That's why we need Christian community. That's why we need brothers and sisters who can both encourage and offer gospel-oriented correction where we need both. So that's, that's the little hint. But the, the encouragement that I want to give all of us here tonight is that by God's grace, what, I, what I'm so thankful for as I look at our church, as I look at what God is doing in refuge, what I see is I do see those things. I see people who are earnestly but imperfectly seeking to follow and obey Jesus, who are pursuing him by God's grace, who are honest about their sins and their shortcoming and are seeking not to hide those things, but to grow in grace and to become more like Jesus as they engage with other believers. That's good news. So if you are hearing anything that's been said so far and are feeling a little beat down, a little weary, first, this is a difficult text. It's, it's a heavy one. And so it's going to feel that way. But there is good news here. The gospel is at work in this, in this community. And I am grateful for that. So let's not lose heart. Let's keep pursuing that because that's what we need. Our actions reveal who we are. And the Judeans in this passage, they continued to reveal themselves as having no true faith in Jesus of any meaningful kind. They were the children of their father, the devil. And so instead of repenting and believing in him, what they did was they, can, they sought to dishonor and shame him. So they said in verse 48, Aren't we correct in saying that you're a Samaritan and are possessed by a demon? Now, to call Jesus a Samaritan was a fairly significant insult in and of itself within their culture. Because the Samaritans, we've talked about them a little bit before, but just as a quick reminder, they were an offshoot of the Jewish people whose beliefs and families intermingled with the surrounding nations. And so the Jewish people considered them at best to be essentially be half-breed heretics is how one commentator put it because they didn't practice the law as the G as the Jews did and they were and because they had um, intermarried with the surrounding nations and so to call Jesus a Samaritan was a low-key way of calling him a heretic as well 
And that would have been bad enough, but instead they went for a direct attack by calling him demon-possessed. And in all honesty, there's a little bit of childishness in all of this. Like, it's just like Jesus just finished calling them all children of the devil, and their response is basically, yeah, well, I know who you are, but what am I? And it's like, come on, guys. (laughs) So Jesus, he's just not having any of it. He says, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my father, and yet you dishonor me. I'm not trying to get praise for myself. There's one who demands it, and he also judges. I tell you the solemn truth. If anyone obeys my teaching, he will never see death. Jesus, he doesn't have any time for childish games or petty arguments. He goes, he's through with all of these people's shenanigans. And instead, he gets just right to the point. And he says, I don't really care what you think because I honor the Father. He says, if you were of the Father, you would care more about what he thinks too. And you would honor me because that's what the Father requires. And instead, you show yourselves again and again to be against me, against him because you are against me. But those who believe in me will never die. They will live forever. And so in Jesus' response, he reveals this one final truth for us today, that the Father judges us based on our response to Jesus. And this is that recurring, one of these recurring themes that's in John's gospel, because it's the point of John's writing He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God in flesh, and to follow him. Because life, eternal life, is ours when we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And those who believe in him will obey him as people freed from the bondage of their sin and will be welcomed into the family of God forever and never will they be cast out that's the response that we want to have to jesus because it's how god wants us to respond to him to believe in him to follow his teaching and to continue in them until the day we stand before him but the judeans they refused to believe they couldn't see what jesus was saying Because their hearts were enslaved to sin. They thought they were found, but they were really lost. And their actions revealed who they were. They were children of the devil. And so they continued in their condemnation. They responded, Now we know you're possessed by a demon. Both Abraham and the prophets died, and yet you say, if anyone obeys my teaching, he will never experience death. You aren't greater than, your fa- than, than our father Abraham who died, are you? And the prophets died too. Who do you claim to be? That last line, verse 53, is really important for us because it's just packed with irony. Are you saying you're greater than Abraham? Are you saying that you're greater than the prophets? Who do you 
think you are. And while they may have been asking, they were asking this with this implied answer of no, the, the irony that, that, that we have as people who know how the story ends is that the answer is a resounding yes. Yes, Jesus is saying that he is greater than Abraham and he's greater than the prophets because he is. And the Jews followed up that question with, this one, with that one that is familiar to every parent and to most of us who have probably heard it at least once because we were once children too. Again, who do you think you are? And so Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is worthless. The one who glorifies me is my father, about whom you people say he is our God. Yet you do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I obey his teaching. Your father Abraham was overjoyed to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. And so Jesus said to them simply, my, the Father glorifies me, the same Father that you say is your God. I know him, I obey his teaching, but you don't. And this is what gets really confusing with him is this, this, this verse 56, where he says, your father Abraham was overjoyed to see my day. And he saw it and he was glad. And this was a strange statement, as the Judeans themselves noted in verse 57. They said, you're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? So what does that mean? Well, some commentators have suggested that Abraham had, um, see, had basically a bit of prophetic foresight, that God revealed to him a glimpse of what was to come. And while that may be so, that really wouldn't have been all that shocking. It wouldn't have been the, the incitement for the kind of ire that Jesus was experiencing with these people. Instead, they recognized that whatever else Jesus was saying, he was saying something that required them to take him very seriously. He was saying he wasn't someone that they could ignore. And so their response in verse 57 has this sense uh, in which is meant to discredit him because he wasn't 50 yet. How could he have seen Abraham when Abraham had been dead for over 2,000 years? And what Jesus was getting at is what we see in verse 58 when he answered them, I tell you the solemn truth, before Abraham came into existence, I am. Now, that we, we, we had one of those I am statements in our, one of our, in our last passage. And here, and, what, and Jesus is using it again here very intentionally. He's taking the special personal name of God, the name that he revealed to Moses, I am who I am. And he once again, he applies it to himself. And that's how he answers them. That's how he's answering these questions of how he can say these things about what, about what, Ab what Abraham saw and delighted in and looked forward to. He's saying, I might be less than 50 years old, but I've existed far longer than Abraham ever did. Because before he was even born, I was there because I am God. And the Judeans immediately knew what he was saying 
because in verse 59, it says that they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and went out to the temple from the temple area. So they picked up these stones. They were, they were going to execute Jesus and they were going to execute Jesus for a very specific crime, blasphemy, because in the law, that's the way that just that blasphemy was to be judged. It was punishment. It was a punishment by death. But there's an important note here that we that we need to keep in mind that that kind of punishment was only acceptable after a fair trial, according to the law. And Jesus had received no trial at all. So what they were doing by picking up stones, getting ready to throw these things at him, this wasn't righteous judgment on their part. It wasn't um, a holy defense of their faith. This was mob justice. And so rather than humbling themselves, rather than repenting and believing, they instead sought to kill Jesus. And Jesus, of course, in that way that he keeps doing whenever people want to kill him until it's the time that he, it's time for people to kill him, he keeps getting away. And I don't know if it's like he's getting down on the ground and like sneaking through people on his hands and knees or if Jesus or if, if God the Father is just ma- using the power of the Spirit to make him just disappear from their sight and he just walks through them. We don't know. He just gets out because it's not his time. And so they sought to kill him. But God calls us to honor him, to honor the son who was with God and who was God in the beginning. The son who was called the word in John 1. Jesus, who is with the father right now. And God judges all people based on how we respond to him. So if all of this is true, what are we going to do about it? If it's true that Jesus defines who are his disciples, Jesus is the source of true freedom, that it's possible to think that we're found and still be lost, that our actions reveal who we are, and that the Father judges us based on how we respond to Jesus, how are we going to respond? For, mo- for the vast majority of us in this room, the vast majority, we would say that we, the majority of us here right now would say that we are followers of Jesus, that we believe that Jesus lived perfectly, died on our behalf, and rose again in victory over sin and death for us. And so for us, this this calling for the majority of us in this room right now is really a calling calling and a challenge to pursue greater faithfulness. So where is God calling us to greater faithfulness? Where is he challenging us in areas where our obedience may be weak, where we may be struggling? Where? do we see opportunities for us to give greater honor and glory to Jesus in our lives, individually and together as a community? And of course, for for those that we 
that we know who don't follow Jesus, the response is simple. And this is where we have a part to play as well. We want to show people the glory of Jesus. We want to show him in his, all of his wonder. And we want to call them to repent and believe. And so we keep, we keep encouraging and challenging people, especially people who are like, ah, you know, I, I've got some time. It's like, don't waste that time because we don't know how long we've got. Because the truth is, is how we respond to Jesus is the most important thing that we will ever do. It's what defines our lives. And so may all of us here tonight continue to respond in faith and to pursue life following the one who sets us free because this is the good news for us. Those whom the Son sets free truly are free indeed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that, that people who have been ensnared and enslaved to sin, who are deeply in love with this thing that is destroying us, that you free us through the work of Jesus. That you send your spirit into this world and that you give life to people who otherwise would be lost without you. God, help us to hold firm to this truth, this reality, to live faithfully as we pursue a life that honors and glorifies you. And as we seek to share this good news with the people in our communities who don't know you and who don't know yet know you, help us to encourage one another toward greater faithfulness, to see where your grace is at work. And to do so with joy and gladness in our hearts, knowing that you free us and that we only find freedom in you. And it's in your name.